You're listening to the Songs of Jesus sermon series at Sojourn Church Midtown. This series explores the power of singing the stories of Jesus. We'll see how these songs are rooted in the promises of God, speak to our deepest longings, and equip us to bring all we are to Him. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, Sarah's my favorite reader. She's also my wife, so... Uh, Well, I am honored to be here during this Advent season. My name is Pastor Nathan, and I get the privilege of being one of your pastors. I just want to affirm uh, one of the things that Jamal said, that we as a church, we sacrifice a lot outside of these walls for the sake of the kingdom. So we do want to turn these lights on. We want to maintain this beautiful building. We want to pay staff, but we give a ton away. Um, A a picture of that is just this last week, uh, one of my, one of our staff members, Joe Smell and I, we traveled to Europe and visited several of our teams. We visited three families who were planting churches. There's a church in Leipzig, Germany that's getting off the ground, the most atheistic place in the world. And then there's a, a church in Lyon, France that's getting off the ground. And we got to see that firsthand. People are meeting, they're learning about Jesus. People are being baptized. It's amazing. And by God's grace, we get to play a part in that when we give. And, the, and you're kind of picking up on some of the themes that we'll talk about today, but there is this theme of go tell it on the mountain. And when we experience the joy of Jesus in our lives, we can't contain it. And that's what we want to talk about this morning is what does it mean to experience Jesus deeply and then for that to flow out to our friends, our neighbors, and onward to the nations. So as we think about this theme of it personally experiencing Jesus, rejoicing in this season, and sharing others, let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful in this season of Advent as we long for you. Lord, maybe we're wrestling with doubts and frustrations, but today we are invited to rejoice because we are anticipating and waiting for a king and he has come. Lord, help us to receive that truth that you are here with us, the spirit filling our hearts, filling our presence and empowering the church to be with you. It's in your name I pray, amen. So as we we look at our passage today, I think it's important for us to know what's happening in the passage. Israel's experience. And Jamal touched on this a few weeks ago because he preached earlier in Isaiah. But what is happening is the people of Israel are living under the wicked and authoritarian leadership of of King Ahaz. And, And so his alignment with Assyria. And it's brought nothing but pain and struggle to God's people. Ahaz was in the lineage of David, but he, had, he was nothing like David. Now, David was full of faults. We know that. We know the stories of, of the things that he did. But he was a man who was uh, after God's own heart. But Ahaz was not. Instead of looking to God for help, he depended on himself. He depended on others for help. And Isaiah is writing to a people living under Ahaz's rule, this oppressive, this cruel rule. And the people were longing for something better, for a better kingdom, and for a better king. So as we're talking about Isaiah 11, the whole time, I want you to just remember that. These are people who are living under oppression, and they're looking for a better king and a better kingdom. There's a longing in their hearts. As I was studying this passage, I was reminded of the passage that Jamal preached from uh, Isaiah 9 that's really helpful. Let's Let's look at it together. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as you rejoice at harvest time and as they have 
Rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So Isaiah 9 is, is picturing this of what is happening with the people. There's a, there's a yoke on their neck. There is a, a oppressive hand upon them. But Isaiah reminds them, a child will be born. And that is what Advent is about. There is a child coming. Now, by God's grace, we have experienced this child coming. We know the end of the story, right? That Jesus is the promised one. He is the eternal father. He is the mighty God. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the prince of peace. But in this passage, do you hear the longing the longing of God's people. The longing for a better time, a better land, a better people. And as I was sitting in this passage and God was working in my heart, I was reminded of the song that we have talked about already, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Go Tell It on the Mountain is a, is a familiar song to all of us. If you're at Christmas time, you turn on your Alexa or your Siri or however you listen, that song is going to come up, right? Go Tell It on the Mountain. And until just a few weeks ago, I had assumed this song was a mountain song. What I mean by that is I'm from the mountains of East Tennessee, and I assumed like you played it with a banjo, and it was to a bluegrass tune. But little did I know, as I did some research, is this is actually an African-American spiritual. In fact, the original title of this song historically is the Christmas Plantation Song. That's powerful, right? That this song was birthed out of the suffering and oppression of a whole group of people as they worked the fields and they praised Jesus for the coming Messiah. These men, women, and children who served under the oppression and cruelty of their masters would often sing songs like this. Songs to bring them hope in hopeless situations. Songs to remind them of their deep faith in God. And this song, created on a slave plantation, was rediscovered by a group at Fisk University. Fisk University is a historically African-American university in Nashville, Tennessee. This is a picture of when it was founded. It was originally an army barracks uh, that was taken after the Civil War. So in 1867, if you're not a historical buff, bear with me. This will get more exciting. In 1867, just two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, a group of men got together and started this college in Nashville, Tennessee. And here's the vision, really powerful. It was a college for both blacks and whites, men and women. And think about the time of when this college was started. That is very unique. The school was focused on education for all people. Sadly, the vision didn't catch on. Not many people got behind a college like this. So the college, very soon, Fisk University got into financial difficulty and they were about to go under. But one of the professors had a crazy idea. His idea was let's gather a lot of the songs that our students and their parents would sing in the fields as, as former slaves. Let's begin traveling the country, performing these songs no one's ever heard before, and let's raise a bunch of money. So this is kind of the last ditch effort of Fisk University to save themselves. But the problem was gathering these songs was a really hard process because it was hard for students to imagine singing spirituals in public for profit. They were private songs of worship. They were birthed out. They were grown out of a time of deep suffering. They were associated with slavery. And these songs were sacred to the students' parents. So when the professor cast this vision, we can save the university. Let's, let's gather together. Let's sing. It's like, I, I don't know if it's something that we want to do. 
But over the years, it was something that caught on. So in, in 1871, after gathering a set of spirituals, this newly created Fisk Jubilee Singers, you can see them here. This is the group that went out in 1871. They took all the money college had. The college basically just gave them everything. Okay, this is it. You take it all and you go and start singing. And that's what they did. They traveled the country and they sang these beautiful African-American spirituals. And it was a huge success. They saved the college. But not only did they save the college, they made a whole genre of music popular again, African-American spirituals. So a lot of the songs that you, maybe you, know, you don't even know, like I didn't know, Go Tell on the Mountain was a spiritual. There's others like that. Fisk University and the Jubilee Singers brought these to light. They brought these to the church. And you know, in the same way as we think about Go Tell It on the Mountain and, and the Fisk Jubilee Singers, in the same way, the people of God were longing for a better day. They were, they were longing for a day of peace. They were longing for a day of freedom. And they were longing for a day where they could fully rejoice in being children of God. They longed for the Messiah. And we, we read Isaiah 9, we read Isaiah 11. These are people who are longing for Jesus. They may not have the words to say, but they're longing for him. And Isaiah reminds them that the Messiah is coming and by God's grace, the Messiah is here. So when Isaiah opens in verse one, we see that he is giving this hope of promise. Verse one says, then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. So let me ask you, how do you get a stump? You cut down a tree, right? That's the only way you get a stump. Stumps don't grow, they, trees grow. You want to get a stump, you cut down a tree. And that's exactly what's happened to the kingdom of David. This great and mighty kingdom that's celebrated in the Psalms and in, and in Samuel and in the Kings. It's, it's a, a mighty kingdom, but it has been slashed down, disgraced. Murder, adultery, invading nations, the abandonment of true worship. David's once great kingdom is but a stump. That's nothing. But life is coming. Isaiah promises through this passage that a branch will grow from the stump. Life will come to a whole world from the branch of the stump. And we know that this is a clear picture of Jesus. There's no denying it. This is Jesus being brought out of the nation of Israel as hope for the world. He was the branch that bears the fruit of salvation. He was the one who would bring life to our broken world. It's not just Isaiah who's saying this. Other prophets said the same thing. Look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will raise up a righteous branch for David. He will reign wisely as king and minister justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So it's Isaiah, it's Jeremiah, it's the prophet, it's the people. They're longing for liberation. They're longing for peace. They're longing for a reason to rejoice. Such a, a powerful concept that we need to slow down and to think about. That God over and over again promises that a better king and a better kingdom are coming. That's a promise. In fact, for us, they're here. The beauty of Jesus is when he came at Advent, he brought hope with him. People, we have hope today. We have hope today. And we have hope that he's coming again to make all things right. So this is crazy thing about the kingdom of God is that we have hope now, but it's not fully realized. But there will be a day that comes when hope is fully realized and Jesus comes back and all things are made right. 
And this passage and the songs that we are singing are coming out of people who are experiencing this truth. That Jesus was the one Israel was waiting for and he came filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what verses 2 through 5 talk about. That when Jesus came, he came filled with the Spirit of God. Verses 2 through 5 beautifully describe the spirit and character of this Messiah. So it's not just the promise he's coming. Isaiah gives this like vivid description, a description of who he was. When he comes, he's going to look like this. He's going to do this. So it's this like compelling picture of the Messiah. Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Vivid picture, powerful picture, that the Spirit of God Himself will rest on Jesus. It will fill Him and fuel His life and His ministry, that His leadership came from a Spirit dependent light. So think about this. The people are under Ahaz's rule, they're feeling the oppression, they are uh, being beat down by the yoke of their oppressor, and they're longing for a better day. And Isaiah reminds them there's one coming that's promised all the way from Genesis chapter 3 that's going to bring liberation, that's going to bring peace to you. And here's what he looks like. He's going to be a different ruler. He's going to be a different king. He's going to be different than the rulers of this world because earthly rulers depend upon their own wisdom and their own strength. But Jesus depended upon the spirit and in his relationship with the father. That's one of my favorite pictures of Jesus in the New Testament. Over and over again, Jesus draws away from life and ministry to be with the father. His life, his fuel for ministry came from his life with God. Also, earthly rulers often seek their own glory and their own gain, but Jesus, fueled by the Spirit, sought to glorify God alone. Jesus is a different kind of ruler, and he brings a different kind of kingdom. And when Isaiah speaks to the people, he's reminding them of that, that Jesus possesses wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength and knowledge, and all these come from the Spirit, that Jesus feared the Lord, Not as if he pulls away from relationship, but he fears him and he draws near in awe and reverence of his father. His life was fueled by a spirit-filled relationship with God. And finally, we see that Jesus is a different kind of leader because he is righteous and faithful. And these two descriptions undergird his very nature, righteous and faithful. That's the one that's coming and that's the one who has come. Jesus' rule and reign would be so different, so joyous that it could not be contained. That when you experience this new Messiah, you have to literally go tell it on the mountain. You think about the shepherds, you think about Mary, you think about all these people who experienced Jesus and shared the beauty of Jesus with others. We cannot contain our personal experience of Jesus. And this new king, Jesus, ushers in an era of peace and a peace that comes from his righteousness and faithfulness. This righteousness and faithfulness undergird his very character. And that brings in peace to a world. Now, I'll be the first to admit, this world doesn't seem very peaceful. It's not very peaceful at all. And maybe as you think about your own life, you think, my life is not peaceful. My family is not peaceful. My inner heart is not peaceful. I don't believe these promises. But that's the the struggle or the tension in this passage is that Jesus brings peace in his first coming, but it's peace that's not fully realized. But we as believers are given the promise like here is peace and complete peace is coming. When Jesus comes back, he comes again. One of the um, things I was doing last week is I got up early and I was reading Isaiah 11 
And my daughter, uh, my kids often wake up early. If you're parents, you know that. Your kids wake up early. You hear their footsteps and you're like, oh no. <laughs> so I heard my daughter and she came downstairs. I was, and I was reading Isaiah 11. So I thought I would try. Like I said, hey, Asia, do you want to come and get in my lap? And I'll, I'll read this to you. And she said, yes. I was like, oh, great. I felt like a perfect dad. I'm going to read you the Bible. <laughs> um, I got through a few verses. But one of the verses I got to was in, in verse 8, where it talks about all these descriptions of you know, lions and lambs and snakes and how they relate to one another. And, and it gives this picture of a child playing next to a cobra den and a child reach, a toddler reaching its hand into a snake pit. And when I read that, my daughter said, oh, that's not good. <laughs> so even a child knows that this world is not peaceful. Toddlers and snakes do not play together. But there is coming a day when that vivid, unbelievable picture is fully realized. That there's a day when my daughter gets to, hopefully she's not sitting with snakes, but she's able to sit in a world of peace and unity, a, a world that is hard for us to grasp. But until that day comes, until hope and joy and peace are fully realized, our call is to make the name of Jesus known. We can't get away from it. We... Two of the songs we sang, three of the songs that we sang this morning talked about the nations. Even these slaves who are like ch literally chained under oppression, they're praising God to the point where I want to go and tell it far and wide. Go tell it on the mountain. Because they had experienced Jesus deep within and they couldn't contain the love of Jesus. They couldn't keep it for themselves. That we, when we experience Jesus, we take it out far and wide to the very ends of the earth. Look back in verse 10. On that day, the root of Jesse, Jesus, will stand as a banner for the people. The nations will look to him for guidance and his resting place will be glorious. That is a very powerful verse. That Jesus himself will stand as a banner, standing before the people and the nations will be drawn to him. They will look to him for guidance and his resting place, Jesus' resting place will be glorious. He'll be glorious. Jesus himself will be a banner for the nations to look to and find their hope in. And here's the hope I want to give you, church. As you and I experience Jesus, as he changes our life, as we experience peace that is unexplainable, we have to tell that to others. We have to move our lives outward to the world. And as I was reading this passage, I was reminded of a book that I just read about the story of Thomas Johnson. Thomas Johnson was a former slave who turned a missionary and has just this powerful story. And I want to share part of it with you. So Thomas Johnson's story is beautiful, yet it's a hard picture of a man longing for peace, longing for freedom, longing for joy, but he could only find that fully in Jesus Thomas was born as a slave in Virginia in 1830. As a child, he was literally ripped from his mother's arms and sold to another plantation. During these years of enslavement as a child, he worked on a tobacco plantation and he worked his fingers to the bone. He experienced the cruel abuse of his slave masters. And yet, in the midst of it all, he had a hunger for learning and for the world around him. In his, in his autobiography, there's all these beautiful stories of him taking opportunities to, to learn what the world is like, to ask questions when he could. He learned to read and write as best he could. He also experienced deep seasons of loneliness and internal pain. In his autobiography, he writes, I wept bitterly in my loneliness. 
and in my darkness of mind, having no father or mother to direct me. Can you imagine being six years old, struggling, and having no father or mother to, to give you insight, to, to talk with you? Six years later, he was sold again to another plantation and was reunited with his mother. She was on that plantation. All along, Thomas continued to have this intense internal longing for peace. And he writes, never shall I be able to express my intense longing for freedom in this long, long days of slavery. During all this, my heart was inclined towards seeking religion. Some of the slaves sang so much about heaven and home and rest and freedom and seemed so happy that I often longed to be able to join them. The home where there was perfect rest and freedom and peace and where there was no slavery, but how to get religion was what perplexed me. Longing for peace, longing to understand who God was. Thomas was so broken over his search for God that he would fast for days on end where he was so weak that he couldn't work. Or he would stay up at night, he couldn't sleep because he was thinking about how to find God. But he soon realized that this pursuit was useless. That if he was to find God, God was the one who had to find him. And that's what happened. One day, while he was walking down the street, Thomas met another African-American man who shared the gospel with him. Here's what he writes. He explained to me the simple gospel. He told me to go to God and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a hell-deserving sinner for Jesus' sake. As soon as my work was done for that night and all was quiet, I resolved that if I lived for a thousand years, I would never stop praying for Jesus' sake. I went to the dining room, fell down upon my knees and said, Oh, Lord, have mercy on me, a hell-deserving sinner, for Jesus' sake. And that was the moment. That was the moment his life changed forever. Thomas heard the plain gospel, and he gave his life to Jesus. And nothing was ever the same. I read another book called Steal Away to Jesus about his life, and the authors tell this powerful story of his spiritual walk with Jesus as a slave. And I just want to take a few moments to read this story. It was one lonely night. Uh, he was on, a, on the plantation, unable to sleep, restless in his shack, longing for freedom. And, and Thomas decided that he would run away. So that's what he did. He just got up and he started running. He, he saw the woods and he ran as fast as he could to the woods. And as he was running, he heard a soft noise coming from a shack on the edge of the plantation. So he stopped. And he drew near to the shack. He, he sat under the window and he listened and this is, this is what he saw as he looked in the window. There within the walls sat a sacred circle of men and women with hands bowed to the floor. Some sat, others kneeled. One lay completely prostrate with his face to the dirt. Thomas had never seen a grown man lay face down on the floor without someone forcing him to do so. This scene bewildered Thomas. Strangely, the volume of their hearts far outweighed the volume of their whispers. Thomas leaned forward toward the window and heard clearly for the first time, steal away, steal away, steal away to Jesus, steal away, steal away home. I ain't got long to stay here, so steal away, steal away to Jesus. Thomas found himself peering through the window frame, completely mesmerized by the depth of emotion in their whispers. He looked around the room and saw that some had expressions of joy, others of pain. There were rare moments when one can see from the outside what the inside of a person looks like. It was as if Thomas could see the inside of his fellow slaves clearly. Pain became visible. 
Sorrow was seen. Hope could not be contained, so it spilled onto their faces, from their eyes, down their cheeks, to their chin. Joy burst from their hearts and caused their hands to sway and to dance. In that rare and vulnerable moment, Thomas saw what he had never seen, faith that Jesus was enough. Thomas pressed his palm of his hand to his heart, and he joined their songs. Although a mere whisper, there was something about the singing of those words that Thomas couldn't explain. His heart beat fast, and his breath was shallow, but for the first time in his life, it wasn't because of fear. The lifelong companion of Thomas Johnson, dreadful fear, seemed to run away into the distant shadows of the quiet tobacco plantation. As if continuing to sing, joining with the other whispers in the shack, a flood of relief gently pushed the years of anguish and grief from his young heart. His eyes released a flood of joyful tears as Thomas felt like he was sitting right next to this man, Jesus, the one who could finally set him free from the bondage that held his heart. What a powerful story. That there in the darkness of night, in the moment of his desperation, as all he knew how to do was to run, Thomas met other believers and worshipped for the first time. Even though he was still in change, his life, his life was forever changed. And when you and I experience that joy, the joy of meeting Jesus, the joy where we can never turn back, where we can never be the same, we cannot contain that joy. We have to tell that to others. And that's exactly what Thomas's life is about. That's exactly what he did. Thomas devoted his life to sharing Jesus with others. First with the men and women who had enslaved him. You heard that right. Shared the gospel with the very men and women who enslaved him. Then after being free, he became a pastor in Chicago. And after attending uh, pastor's college under Charles Spurgeon, he headed off to Liberia, West Africa as a missionary. Lost his wife, became very sick, but he gave his very life to cross oceans and languages and to go tell it on the mountain. To people who had never heard the gospel, for, for the love of Jesus that, that poured into his life and it, it poured out for others. And my point in sharing the story of Thomas Johnson is to show that he lived a life that lived out Isaiah 11 one who was oppressed, one who was mistreated and lived under a cruel life. Yet he leaned into the hope that he lived a life of rejoicing in his Savior and sharing Jesus wherever he went. His personal experience with Jesus drove him to tell others. And when we experience God, we ourselves are driven out to our neighbors, to our friends, and beyond. And that is the beauty of Christmas. Christmas is a season of rejoicing because Jesus, the promised Messiah, has come to bring a better kingdom. His kingdom is one of freedom, of peace, and a righteous rule. He is a better king and he invites us into this better kingdom. It doesn't mean life is without pain and struggle and it doesn't mean that we will always be liberated in this life, but it means that our king will draw near. When we experience this God, for ourselves, when we experience a life of rejoicing, we can't help but make Jesus known. Like the Fist Jubilee singers, like the faithful Christians bound in slavery, like Thomas Johnson, who could not keep the glory of God to himself, we must make Jesus known to those around us. So this morning, I want to urge you to respond to this message in two ways.
First of all, rejoice. Rejoice in Jesus. No matter what life throws at you, no matter what you sit in, you can rejoice if you know the Messiah. Take time to rejoice in your Savior this season. The early readers of Isaiah 11 would have read this passage and longed for a better day. But we know the better day is here. Jesus is here. Consider doing one of the following things. Make rejoicing a part of your daily devotions. What do I mean by that? Stop for just a moment and praise God in prayer or through journaling for all the things that bring you joy. This is a wonderful practice. I've done this uh, for the last several months as I start my day with gratitude. Just write a couple things I'm thankful for. Sometimes it's amazing. I have a wonderful wife. I have beautiful kids. Sometimes it's really silly. Like Louisville has really good coffee. I'm drinking a good cup of coffee. Thank you, Jesus. Or I'm, I'm part of a wonderful church who loves and, and they love me. Whatever it is in your life that brings you joy, praise God for, rejoice over. Start and end your day with prayers of thankfulness to Jesus. Secondly, choose each day to rejoice in relationships. What I mean by that is, is choose a person in your life that you can rejoice over. Shoot them a text. Give them a call. Write them a handwritten letter at Christmas. Everybody writes, likes letters, right? Just show up at their house. It's crazy, I know. Just go and knock at someone's house and say, I was in the neighborhood. I just want you to know that I love you. I'm thankful for you. Rejoice in the relationships God has given you. And lastly, sing every chance you get. Be that weird person who is always singing everywhere you get. You can ask Jamal, I'm always singing in the office. You can ask my wife, I sing wherever we go. It's a little weird, but just embrace it. You're in a season of singing, right? Create a playlist and put it full of songs that drive your heart to worship, that drive your heart to thankfulness, and just sing to Jesus. Rejoice that you have been found by the Messiah. Secondly, Make Jesus known to others. As your heart is filled up with gratitude and rejoicing, let that flow out to those around you. Share the love of Jesus with others. Listen, this is not a guilt trip. I'm not trying to guilt trip you. It's an invitation. Join in with others of making Jesus known to those around you. I know it can be scary, but simply start where you are and share your experiences. I love John chapter four with the Samaritan woman. She meets Jesus at the well and the first thing she does is she leaves her jar and she runs to her village and she tells people about Jesus. She had been a convert for like five minutes and she simply told people what she had experienced. In this season, just share what Jesus is doing in your life and you will be amazed about how much God can use your witness. So friends, in this Christmas season, it's a season for rejoicing. It's a season for sharing the love we have found in Jesus. So here's my encouragement to you. Go and tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Let's pray together. Father, you are a God who both gives promises and you keep your promises. In our broken, messed up world, Lord, you promised to come and you did. Advent, Lord, is the season where we can thank you for coming and we can anticipate that you will come again. Father, meet us in our need. Meet us in the season. May we rejoice because we have been found in you and you give us a reason to rejoice. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So Jesus gave us a symbol of rejoicing in his body and his blood. 
that on the night he was betrayed, he, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took a cup and he said, this is my body, a cup of wine. This is my body shed for you. As often as you meet together, celebrate the gift I have given to you. Rejoice in the act of taking the bread and the wine. Our tradition here at Sojourn is you can come up to the front or to the back, break off a piece of bread, dip it in the wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine. And we can celebrate that Jesus has come and he's coming again. So as we take communion, rejoice. Rejoice over all of those things. Come to Jesus and give your life to him. If you're a Christian, it's a season for rejoicing. If you're not a Christian, this is a season to embrace Jesus for the first time. Let's do that now as we take communion. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.